This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, episode 95. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump into today's interview. My guest today is Bo Bowen. Bo is a licensed pharmacist who started out working as a pharmacist, but after a few years switched careers to become a certified financial advisor. In that capacity, he focused on advising individuals and families planning for retirement about the nuances and complex considerations of planning for health care and health insurance in retirement. His primary work was advising clients on health care financial planning, and he did that on a non-commissioned basis, which means he wasn't getting paid to sell insurance plans. His firm was just charging for the financial advice, so he would have been in a position to provide objective advice squarely aligned with the client's interests. After several years of financial advisory work, he left uh, the financial planning world to go back into pharmacy practice where he's been working since. So he's seen the practice of healthcare from both the provider side and from the financial planning side as it relates to health insurance planning. So that's why I'm excited to have Bo on the podcast today, because I think he has a really unique, relevant background and can bring a unique perspective to helping early retirees think about health insurance planning in retirement. So hope you enjoy this conversation and let's jump into it. Thank, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. How are you doing? Yeah, doing good. It's, uh, I've been enjoying your podcast. It's been a lot of fun listening to the episodes. So I think you're one of maybe three podcasts. I've, I've listened to every episode and been pretty religious about listening. So it's been good. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, hey, by the way, I apologize. Um, my voice is really hoarse. I normally don't sound this way. So this is definitely going to be It'll sound different, but I can still talk. So, um, you know, glad to have the conversation today. But I have my water. Hey, no problem. Yeah, I've got I've got a bit of water myself. I was worried after uh, the cold weather this morning, running and uh, you know below freezing weather was going to be a little difficult on the lungs. So, but th- thankfully, my voice isn't quite as as raspy as yours. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see if uh, see if I we get I can get through this. I think I think I should be okay though. Um, oh, yeah. Maybe where I'd love to start is by just understanding a little bit more about your personal background. You know, I understand you're working in pharmacy right now, but you were working as a financial advisor before, specifically advising on health insurance for retirees. So, like, could you share a little bit about, like, why did you decide to specialize in health insurance consulting as a financial advisor in your in your prior career? 
Yeah, good question. So um, I'd always been really interested in finance in general. You know, I was, I guess, uh, had a really privileged upbringing, not in terms of financial resources being handed to me, but financial lessons. So, you know, I had, for example, um, my first job was when I was 15, you know, in I think 98 or, or so, 99. And uh, my grandmother was like, hey, you know, if you if you contribute to this new thing called a Roth IRA, you know, I'll match you, you know. Uh, for the first, you know, 500 bucks you put in or whatever, just so some early lessons uh, with finance and early investing kind of got me interested in that. And so I went to pharmacy school, really just um, knew nothing about drugs, but uh, decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, thought I could make a pretty good living, uh, graduated in 09 uh, uh, with the doctor of pharmacy degree. And so started practicing pharmacy, did that for maybe seven or so years, worked for Walgreens. A little bit while in school and then afterwards uh once i graduated and um you know along that way i was just you know by default almost probably saving 70 percent of my income and really uh not really thinking much of it just because I, I was used to living uh really as a college student for you know seven seven years while i was going through school and uh yeah so once once i kind of realized like hey i kind of this hobby of mine's really been uh you know, helpful to friends around me and so forth. I thought, oh, let me transition and do, you know, financial planning or get into that industry. And uh, so joined a, you know, a national brokerage firm, started uh, advising, you know, individuals and families on just broad, you know, investment uh, topics, you know, retirement accounts, retirement planning, that sort of thing. And then um, realized how much I did know just you know, when you're faced with other people's circumstances uh, that are totally different from your own, like older folks, you know, looking at estate planning. I, I hadn't even thought about estate planning, right? You know, uh, just wasn't wasn't anything on my radar. So it started kind of just seeing other people's perspectives, led me into trying to fill those gaps in my knowledge because um, I, you know, just wanted to learn more. And I guess to get to your original question, a big gap was, you know, health insurance planning. I just had always taken it for granted that, you know, I had employer coverage and uh, felt like, you know, that was one of those topics that wasn't really covered much. Uh, even even once I did do the, the CFP or certified financial planner curriculum, um, only about 17 percent of that exam even covers any health insurance or, you know, insurance planning. And of that, you know, a small subset is, you know, Medicare, employer, COBRA, you know, uh, on exchange, off exchange sort of uh, insurance planning. So I, I decided, okay, well, you know, this is, this is good. I'm enjoying working with families, but um, where can I kind of figure out how to become an expert on that area. And so I started doing some online research and uh, there's really not a whole lot of options, you know, but the industry is such that, you know, you hopefully work with a trusted insurance agent and who you feel has your best interest at heart. And the model has historically been that, you know, you uh, buy a insurance product of some kind and a commission's paid to uh, that agent for recommending um, a health insurance strategy to you. And you hope that uh, they've got, you know, a wide range of options and they're, they're choosing the best one given, given the information at hand. Uh, but I realized that that model 
is sometimes conflicted. And so I, I kind of sought out other options and I really only came across a couple in the country um, that do health insurance advice on a, a fee only basis. And so I uh, applied for a job with, with that company, you know, um, working basically directly with financial planners, other financial planners, um, trying to kind of come up with tailored strategies for their clients. And so that really the financial planners were our clients. And then we just essentially gave advice to their clients on behalf of them. So that was kind of a, in a way that business model sort of forced upon us by the fact that there is no really, uh, there's not really a regulatory framework for, you know, giving advice when the product itself has an embedded commission paid to whoever sells that product. So it's, it's a little difficult to hold yourself out to the public. Like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to give this great, you know, fiduciary level advice to you um, based on, you know, specific specifics of your situation. Um, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little difficult to do that. So there, there was a company based in Nashville, Tennessee, and that's, you know, where I live. I was doing that. So I thought, great, this is no better place to learn more about this kind of, you know, niche. And, um, yeah, so that did that for a little while, kind of realized, you know, felt like I was pretty, pretty competent with that and, uh, decided then, uh, really just to transition back into active pharmacy practice, um, just cause I, I happen to get today, uh, with a friend of mine, but I'm kind of running on now. So <laughs> maybe no worries. Uh, we can dig into some, some specifics there. Yeah. How, how long were you like, how long were you in the role where you were doing health insurance specific advisory work? How long was that, I guess, period? It was under a year, you know, I would say somewhere between six months and a year, I think. Um, that's really where I felt like I got all the benefit I could in terms of the education aspect. And then it was just, you know, this sort of more mundane, you know, taking on quite a big workload in terms of uh, serving clients. And, and yeah, so for me, it felt like I wasn't really progressing knowledge wise. I was just doing a job at that point, which, you know, kind of the point of financial independence is to, you know, do what's meaningful and fulfilling and, and where there's growth and not so much just slaving away or toiling away, doing something that just for a paycheck or whatever. So Got it. So, and how were, how long were you a financial advisor or just all, all in the, both the pre health insurance part and the, uh, the post? Um, right about five and a half years, something like that. Oh, okay. Got it. So I get, so the, the health insurance portion was the back end of that, the, the last six, 12 months. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And what made you want to eventually then switch back to the provider side as a pharmacist? Um, really just the culture, the, the people that you're surrounded with on a day-to-day basis. You know, um, I had an opportunity to join a, a um, company called Fresenius Medical Care, uh, North America. Um, there's a, they're a big dialysis provider. Um, and really like, to be honest, it was just uh, a chance to join a really good team. Um, I had a close friend who's been a close friend uh, for over 10 years who was hiring a team of pharmacists. And I said, great, I can, I can work with her. Um, 
yeah, I also had some influence in terms of talking to some of the other people who were being onboarded that, at that same time and, and kind of encouraging s- some different applicants that eventually got hired. And so kind of came with, you know, a team of people that I really enjoyed working with and the culture of pharmacy is such where there's just a certain personality that's drawn to pharmacy. Oftentimes, you know, it's kind of people with servants hearts that are, you know, just pretty, um, yeah, just good people. Um, I think in general, not, not to say that there's a reason for this, but there, there, there's oftentimes, you know, different polls that show pharmacists as one of the more trusted professions and financial advisors are, are usually kind of the opposite, right? Maybe uh, less trusted, um, insurance uh, salesmen as well, maybe maybe not highest on the trust rankings, and that's that's for a reason. I think in general, the different there's different cultures around those different industries, and um, you know, I, I was kind of tiring of working for uh, other financial planners, you know, who oftentimes would, uh, you know, just kind of they weren't really putting the client first in a lot of cases, and and it just grated on me because I'm why am I, you know uh doing this this work for people who really don't deserve you know the the work and and the effort i'm putting into this um and trying to take care of their clients you know so i'm making them look great you know and trying to give good advice but then uh you know they're not really the type of people i want to work with um so that's probably the majority of that not to not to be negative but i think in general just surrounding myself with good people that enjoy working with was the main the main driver of that yeah it makes sense and um and and my my wife would agree she's my wife by the way is a pharmacist as well so and has been her whole career uh and so she she's definitely the good one in our family the servant heart in our family i think (laughs) um okay well i would love to um get into some of the um, kind of nitty gritty tactical aspects about what retirees should know about health insurance planning. And maybe to start, would love to get your thoughts on like, what do you think are the biggest challenges that retirees and especially early retirees face when it comes to healthcare planning? That's a great question. Um, I mean, broadly, I'd say it's just ignorance, right? I mean, certain assumptions that everybody as about health insurance where what's the what's the expression it's not what you don't know that hurts it's what you know for sure that just ain't so i don't know if that's mark twain or somebody said that uh that always stuck with me um that's really true with health insurance planning um give you a quick example so i had an emergency call working uh with that health healthcare financial planning company i worked with and um it was a gentleman who had uh, just lost his job. He was scheduled to have a surgery, you know, later about three weeks away uh, the following month. And, you know, he's, he's uh, no longer employed and he had always been told by colleagues or by friends or just, you know, if, if you lost your job, you'd often assume that, Hey, I've got access to Cobra. You know, this will be no big deal. I just pay my premiums. Maybe they're not subsidized like they previously were, but, this will be fine. You know, I'm already scheduled for this surgery. I'm just going to, you know, pay a little bit more for a couple months, get that surgery done and then, then figure out what's going on afterwards, you know, maybe get a new job, whatever, you know, I'll figure it out. Um, this gentleman worked for an employer that had under 20 employees. They, he had no access to Cobra whatsoever. And when we started doing the, the research to see what other options were available, he quickly found out that his provider was not in network for any, 
um, Affordable Care Act compliant plans on healthcare.gov. So it was sort of like, okay, uh, now I've got to, you know, maybe talk to their billing office, you know, see if there's any, you know, cash pay discount they, they might uh, offer me. Maybe, maybe there's, maybe I need to look into seeing a different provider, you know, which you didn't really want to do. You know, this, this surgeon had followed him through other procedures. So um, it's things like that where I think you just have to do the planning ahead of time, you know, know your situation, know the, know the landscape and you're given a zip code, county or state, um, and just really stress test or game plan uh, that scenario out before it happens, before you're faced with it and kind of know a bit about, um, and that, that might be, you know, things like uh, looking at like a, a simple website, like either uh, kaiserfamilyfoundation.org, kff.org has a lot of, you know, Q&A sections and that, that has some state specific information that's helpful. Um, also uh, healthinsurance.org, um, another decent uh, website that will have like a state by state sort of uh, overview of the landscape in different markets. So you can kind of familiarize yourself with, okay, you know, what, what options even exist in this area, you know, especially if you're moving or, um, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of things like that. And it's very specific to the area you're in. So I'll give you another quick uh, example. So there, you know, had an, you know, everything was an emergency, <laughs> but, uh, you know, had a financial advisor, you know, email me and say, you know, this is very sensitive. I have, uh, you know, a very valuable client who has a, a daughter who's gotten pregnant unexpectedly and she has no health insurance. You know, what does she do? And I was like, well, first off, you know, your, if your client's worth tens of millions of dollars, I mean, don't you think you just pay a, couple, pay a few thousand dollars for, you know, the delivery? I don't know. That's just me. But, uh, but beyond that, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, where does she live? You know, in New York, uh, pregnancy is a qualifying event. You can get health insurance on the exchange just from being pregnant. You know, um, that's not the case in most states. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very, very specific to your, your locale and your situation and kind of what you're, what, what's important to you and the, the doctors you want to see the um, yeah. Um, so. I see. So it sounds like the, your, your geographic location is really important. Are there um, kind of uh, I don't know, tips that, you would suggest that transcend where you're specifically located for given that it's easy to mess this up. Um, like what are some of the tips or important things that soon to be retirees should be thinking about and considering and playing planning in advance when it comes to, you know, getting ready to transition off of employer uh, insurance coverage onto whatever the case may be. Like let's say they're not yet ready for Medicare. They're not at the age yet. Um, what are some of the things that they should be considering as kind of just like basic, basic strategy? Yeah. Okay. So basic building blocks I'd say is know exactly what your unsubsidized rate for your Cobra would be, you know, if like for my employer now, you know, we've got a few different options, but just as an example, we have an option that's $10 every two weeks as your premium that's taken out of your check the unsubsidized cost of that's about 700 per month. And 
you know, COBRA typically can be up to 102% of that unsubsidized premium. So no kind of roughly, okay, I'm going to be paying about $700. Should I elect COBRA? Um, it's real simple to use KFF.org subsidy calculator or just healthcare.gov subsidy calculator to kind of gauge, you know, what sort of income situation, uh, you know, you're either you're in or could be in in the future should should you transition into early retirement and uh on that topic some of the basic tax planning is super easy um you know in terms of setting aside some cash you know um ahead of that date potentially depending on kind of i mean it, it is quite well i won't say difficult it's difficult if you've never done it to forecast sort of a marginal rate uh, including the impacts of subsidies on the exchange um, versus your your pre-retirement or you know um, before you leave work sort of uh, marginal tax rate just comparing those those two and and trying to uh, make them more level you know not not um, not realize so much taxable income while you're working that you're, you know, paying unnecessary taxes relative to the, what's forecasted for the future. But also, you know, it's, it's oftentimes real easy, you know, to either while you're on COBRA, you know, for either 18 or 36 months, depending on what, what qualified you for COBRA. Um, it's real easy to realize some income because in theory, you know, you may be on COBRA, you're not earning that paycheck from the job. You're able to maybe realize some income from, your IRA or from 401k, uh, some other taxable money, capital gains, et cetera, um, where you can just, you know, live on, you know, basically that, that basis uh, that's that's been realized over that that period of time to bridge for future years of, of uh, subsidies. Uh, I guess other other um, just important things that are pretty, pretty basic is just kind of understanding the landscape in your market. Like, hey, what what options are on the exchange, you know, for a given calendar year, what options are off exchange, um, you know, what does my COBRA look like? And what is, what is maybe other employer uh, plan options, you know, your part-time work or whatever, what are those, what do those options look like? Um, in a state like Tennessee, we're, we're really lucky because we've got, um, well, either lucky or unlucky, however you want to look at it. Uh, unlucky for the ill-informed, but uh, super lucky for the informed. Um, we've got Farm Bureau options in, in Tennessee where, you know, they're not they're not considered health insurance because they're sort of a member organization that's, you know, uh, you've got to join in order to have access to, but it functions very similarly to other insurance, except they screen out individuals based on pre-existing conditions and uh, they also doesn't they don't they're not compliant with the affordable care act uh, but but otherwise function pretty pretty well as as health insurance and um you know they'll be really quite quite affordable um th that's been operating in tennessee longer than any other uh state you know since about 1993 i want to say if i'm not mistaken so texas has recently uh I think got an option uh, with the Farm Bureau in Texas, um, maybe as of last year, pretty recent. Uh, Indiana has that. There's there's several states that, maybe around six states in total that have that option. So again, just knowing your your local uh, landscape is important. So looking at you know some of those basic websites to just understand what's available is is good.
So in like in your prior role, how, how would you help soon to be retirees choose the right plan? If that, if that is the outcome that uh, would typically happen, um, how would you help them navigate to get to the right plan that balances, you know, their needs, their budget, et cetera. Cause Cobra, you know, it, it's finite. It'll turn run out at some point and it sometimes it's quite expensive. So mm-hmm. you might be looking at the uh, affordable care act marketplaces. You might be looking at just the private market, which could be very expensive. Um, or you might be looking at doing like a part-time work, like you said, to qualify for healthcare. But how would you, I guess, typically step-by-step walk a, um, a would-be retiree who's like, you know, maybe not as knowledgeable and they just need a framework. Um, I don't know if you had a framework or a step-by-step process that you would follow to get them to the right plan that balance their needs and budget, say, uh, budget. How would, how would you do that? Yeah, so we we basically would create more or less a, a slide deck or PowerPoint presentation, and we basically start with okay, what drugs do you take? All right, write all those down. What providers do you do you value? You know, do you, if you see you know primary care that you're attached to, or you see specialists that you have a relationship with that you don't want to lose, okay. Let's let's take that into account. And then from there, you know, we just basically make a grid, you know, that would show in network, out of network, you know, with all the different plan options. So we basically just manually investigate every health insurance offering in that zip code where they lived. You know, if they had multiple residents in different states, we'd consider, you know, okay, how willing are you to spend more than half the year in this state versus your current state, so on and so forth. Um so there, there's a lot of manual work involved, basically, in terms of just finding out which doctors fit into which network. So that was a big part of it, just making sort of a, a grid that said, you know, okay, here's all the doctors, here's all the different networks, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the UHC Choice Plus network, you know, or if it was some other, you know, Blue Cross uh, network, whatever, whatever. Uh, contracting that the doctors would do, um, uh, we would we would outline that first. So that that oftentimes would knock, the, and it would depend on the pe- person, right? So some people say, "I don't care. I'll just go w- to whatever doctor you know um, I see is fine with me. I don't have any particular ties to anybody." Or they're moving to a new place, in which case they haven't met anybody. In which case we just send them you know different options and kind of inform them about what was out there. Uh, what the different networks look like and so forth. Um, but a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, I have to go to Vanderbilt, you know, if I'm in Nashville or I'll have to go to the Mayo Clinic or, you know, I have to have access to those networks because I value the quality of care at those places. Um, and that would, that would knock out a ton of plans, you know, frankly, just right off the bat. Um, and then from there, it became a little easier to kind of compare costs versus coverage and, you know, okay, do you want more of the high deductible style plan? Do you, how, how valuable is having an HSA, you know, the tax savings with that? Um, and then, and then just go from there, you know, um, and narrow it down further based on the specifics. And Makes sense. Um, does that then become, if not an annual, uh, I guess, consultation that they come back to you for? I know you're not in the role anymore, but like, I guess a role like that, does it become a situation where the like the client really should be coming back if not annually then every few years because you know the drugs you take may change where your 
retirement location is like where you want to stay may change. I mean, you might make plans to, I don't know, be closer to your grandkids or something like that. And that may necessitate rethinking some of those insurance choices uh, so that you don't, you don't get left with a surprise when you need to use it and realize you actually can't use it for, you know, one reason or another. Um, would you, how would you recommend retirees, uh, I guess, revisit on, and on what type of cadence should they revisit uh, this type of uh, um, assessment or, or consultation with yeah. their financial advisor? Uh, that's a great question. Um, the way that was structured in my previous role is that you would have a pretty, pretty routine annual check-in. Um, and then the way it was structured also is that you had sort of unlimited access during the year. So if there was a new drug or, you know, you're having problems getting, getting, uh, covered, you know, if it required a prior authorization or even a more uh, in-depth formulary exception where you needed some additional steps to have the drug covered, um, you know, we were kind of on call for those sort of sort of things as well. It was sort of a white glove service all around. Um, but but yeah, I mean, at minimum once a year. Um, and then anytime something major changes in your life, you know, uh, oftentimes, you know, the Healthcare spending is not, you know, you look at sort of the average medical claim, you might see some some articles about the average medical claim is $2,000 and everybody has in their mind, oh, okay, just set aside a few grand, I'm, I'm fine. Um, it's not the, the, the average and uh, sort of the tails are, it's very skewed, you know, in one direction where you have huge spending on, you know, some acute conditions that can occur, you know, my current role is is a perfect example of that where, you know, we only have about a half million dialysis patients in the country, but um, the average commercial plan pays about a quarter million dollars per year for those patients. Um, Medicare pays maybe 80,000 a year for those patients. And so um, you, you talk about having acute kidney injury, you know, you, you take too much ibuprofen or you have other, some other uh, illness or uh, injury and suddenly you find yourself in a situation where uh, you're spending a whole lot of money um, and that, that you know everybody has cancer in their mind or different different examples of you know costly illnesses um, but that's sort of you know obviously you would revisit when there's any major change in your in your health situation um, yeah makes sense do you think the considerations change? at all, depending on if you're planning to retire in your 50s versus 40s or even 30s? Like, in what ways should the age at which you're planning to retire influence how you think about or plan for uh, health insurance coverage? Or, or does it? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's the same framework analysis. No, it it, it does. I mean, there there's um, definitely a tremendous amount of uncertainty around how not just the cost now, but how those costs will evolve over multiple decades. Um, you look at, you know, Medicare spending in general, and you, you sort of know that intuitively, like, hey, this is not something that I'm going to be able to project really cleanly over the rest of my life. Um, and part of that, you know, um, if you think about um, sort of just a simple example that comes to mind, um, there was a news article maybe within the last few, let's say the last month 
I talked about the surprise announcement that Medicare Part B premiums were going to decline, you know, year over year, you know, from last year to this year, it went down about 3% or for this coming year, 2023, they're, they're, they're going to lower them about 3%. And everybody's sort of like, well, how did that happen? You know, healthcare spending keeps increasing, you know, about four or 5% a year. And yet, Part B premiums that cover outpatient, you know, doctors' visits and outpatient services, medical services for uh, retirees, you know, are declining. And um, really, that was due to just one drug that's covered in, uh, as an infusion, an IV infusion uh, called Adihelm, Aduhelm, uh, for early on or early symptoms of Alzheimer's. Um, that one drug wasn't utilized as much as was projected. And so you're talking about one single drug for one single condition having a 3% impact on the costs that everyone faces in the entire country. It's, it's That's kind crazy. of a blowing kind of example of how just small factors can impact things. I mean, uh, other changes like that are coming in the future. I mean, uh, there's a lot of policy decisions that are trying to control costs by shifting more of the burden to Medicare. Um, another example of that is that, um, you know, there's some Part D covered drugs that are in the next coming years going to be covered under Part B as a um, boy, um, simply because Medicare um, Part B can can control costs uh, better and well because they're a single payer they can just dictate what they'll pay for drugs whereas um, the Part D landscape is sort of this hodgepodge of private insurers that are all sort of really unable to dictate price to the drug manufacturers so policymakers solution to that mess is that oh well we'll just you know kind of quietly for certain conditions certain drugs you know, slowly take oral medications into like for dialysis patients saying, okay, these, these certain class of drugs are going to be covered as a, uh, just a, a payment for Medicare part B rather than uh, being covered under outpatient drug benefit. And so, um, wow. the drugs that are cost, you know, 10, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year will now be covered under part B starting, you know, in the next couple calendar years. And so you really can't, forecasts, you know, what policy decisions are going to be made. Um, so you just sort of have to try to, the best you can sort of understand what those drivers are of, of costs and try to set aside enough money to, to navigate it. I mean, you know, I don't know, Fidelity publishes that sort of annual report that lots of people cite of, okay, age 65 married couple is going to spend X amount, you know, on med medical services uh, through retirement. And they say, okay, 65 married couple, 30 year retirement, what is that going to cost? And I think it's up to $313,000 or so. And, and they kind of break that down and say, oh, you know, 17% is going to be prescription drugs, you know, uh, and they say, okay, you know, maybe 39 or 40% is going to be um, premiums for Part B, Part D. You know, the remainder is going to be your out-of-pocket expenses, you know, co-pays and co-insurance and so forth. For to your, to your, to your point, that's, those are averages still, right? So if you're the unfortunate dialysis patient, you could blow through that in a year maybe, you know? So oh, exactly. Given the uncertainty and, like, I guess the um, – especially the uncertainty if you end up retiring early – are there any 
I guess, tips or suggestions you might have for how uh, a would-be early retiree can have some semblance of like analyzing their situation, like at least semi-quantitatively to try to uh, forecast what their healthcare costs are or anticipate, you know, for, I don't know, out of band costs. Maybe there's not. I'm just trying to see if there's like, I, I guess, any um, um, better suggestions that we could provide to listeners around like, you know, better than, I guess, just, you know, guessing or, um, uh, you know, like not, not having any you know, like actual quantitative and quantitative way to, uh, forecast. Cause it's, it's a bit unsatisfying and probably worrying if you know that unexpected healthcare costs can arise and it's just kind of like, well, the future is so uncertain. Like there's just unknowable. Like, is there, I guess, what suggestions might you have for somebody who say 45, they're in a fortunate position position that they can't retire early. Maybe they're 50. And so they still have a bit of time before they get to Medicare. Are there things they can do actions they can take like analyses they can do? Maybe it's like run their 23 and me, you know, uh, you know, analysis to see what they're, you know, what might be hereditary for them, et cetera. They're just kind of curious to get your thoughts on things that, uh, actions that, that uh, would-be retirees can take if they're retiring early? Yeah, that's, I mean, I definitely see where you're going with that and think it's important to kind of try to get a handle on what you're facing risk-wise. I mean, me personally, you know, I want to make sure that I can afford the out-of-pocket max, you know, on an exchange plan for the foreseeable future and sort of, take maybe a, a 4% inflation rate on that roughly. Um, I think, I think probably healthcare inflation, I mean, at least prescription drug inflation has been quite low for, for years now. People don't have that in their mind, but generic drugs especially have been uh, falling in price pretty, pretty dramatically over the last decade. I think there's reason to believe that healthcare inflation won't be significantly higher than overall inflation and at least lately it's it's been lower than overall inflation of course overall inflation has been really high so i mean i would say being able to look at that out-of-pocket max um each calendar year uh ongoing is is definitely plenty of cushion to sort of deal with uncertainties if i would say that the threshold where maybe um you know, it would be, okay, I don't have that much money set aside to cover that, okay, and still have my other budget items covered, then what? You know, then I think it just comes down to adapting to what comes your way and just how adaptable you are as a person is going to drive how well you can navigate the healthcare landscape, whether that's, you know, being willing to take a flight to Canada, Singapore, you know, another country, developed country to import 90 days of drugs, you know, uh, here and there, if you if you get a really expensive, you know, drug that you have to take and, and you can't afford the prices in the US, or um, if you need to have a procedure done, you know, again, look at those developed countries that have really great um, healthcare systems. And if you're if you're flexible, and willing to navigate 
you know, what comes your way. I think there's plenty of options for really inexpensive care globally, whether it's, you know, Singapore, Taiwan, depends on the situation, depends on the, the condition, depends on what you need. But um, I think that's definitely a, a good route for most people. Uh, I think there are, there are people out there who are pretty wed to, you know, a given healthcare system within the, the United States. Um, I, you know, I had two great grandfathers who graduated from Vanderbilt medical school and had one from Johns Hopkins in the family and, and, and these different prestigious universities, you know, oftentimes family members, um, will say, Oh, I'm only going there. You know, that's all I'm going to do. And if that's you, then, then you do need to set aside more money. Frankly, you just, <laughs> you're, you're going to have to have more of a cushion because there, there are a lot more, um, outliers in terms of cost in the U S than other places, you know, with a single payer, you've just got more gamesmanship in the U S in terms of the insurance landscape as such, where it's almost, it's very similar to higher education, you know, where you Princeton and, and Yale and Harvard are all racing to have the highest sticker price so that they can then give you the biggest scholarship, you know, to make it seem like, okay, I'm, I'm signaling that I've got great quality here and, the net cost is lower than anywhere else. Um, the insurers are all kind of racing. There's no incentive to sort of put pressure on lowering prices. They're, they're just more concerned with demonstrating savings. And, and also there's a, there's, there's a lot of rebate schemes involved that there is legislation kind of trying to limit now going forward. But, you know, in, in past years, it was totally common for in a, a pharmacy benefit manager, you know, to cover a, way more expensive drug on their formulary or their approved drug list, and then just demand a rebate from the manufacturer of uh, a, a certain percentage of that money. And so it, it was more profitable, more profitable for the insurer to do that mm -hmm. than to actually try to squeeze or um, to try to lower prices overall. And so it's similar in, in higher education. There's huge tuition inflation, right? But it's not the net cost that's inflating quite, quite that high. In fact, the net cost is pretty pretty reasonable because that's really tied to what people can can afford. Um, so I think there's there's definitely reasons to be optimistic. I mean, it, a lot of it has to do with how flexible and how adaptable you are. And I think most early retirees generally fit into the camp of more adaptable, more flexible, just because the behaviors that get you to that situation in, in many cases are sort of being budget conscious you know, being able to sort of look at, you know, whether that's, you know, at the grocery store, looking at different options and looking at for the best value, being value conscious in general is like super important in, in healthcare. Uh, so if you, if you just understand sort of what things cost and you're just aware of your situation and, and being adaptable, I think that's, yeah, there's, of course you have to educate yourself like in, in anything complicated, you have to take the steps to educate yourself. But in general, if, if you're value conscious and, and paying attention to quality and not just looking at the sticker price as an indication of quality, um, I think there's reasons to be optimistic for sure. Makes sense. What are um, other, I guess, what are common mistakes that you have observed that retirees m often make when it comes to planning for their health insurance needs in retirement? You kind of alluded to uh, some examples earlier in our discussion, but I was wondering if there are specific things that you saw come up actually over and over again that, um, you know, you would advise to 
somebody who's contemplating retirement to think about, you know, perhaps earlier? It's a good question. Um, honestly, the most common thing I saw was people being unwilling to retire early because of health insurance costs, you know, basically people saying, you know, I'm going to work until Medicare age, you know, even if they were really financially prepared otherwise to, to cut ties with their job, you know, a couple of years earlier. Um, it, it's amazing uh, just the, the fear involved with that decision and wanting something more Medicare does definitely feels more predictable and stable than sort of the, the ACA landscape and the sort of stigma, at least in the South, you know, the stigma of Obamacare, you know, uh, is definitely something I face for sure. People, people just not being willing to even participate in uh, the exchange, you know, for just, I wouldn't say political reasons, just sort of just, just the uncertainties around it, the the exit and entrance of different insurers year to year, you know, oftentimes, you know, certain states, um, and this, this has changed, but, you know, a couple of years ago, Alabama only had Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alabama as the only insurer on their exchange. And so people said, well, I had a bad experience with them and I just, I'm just not going to use them, you know, and a lot of, a lot of people just unwilling to part with the employer-based coverage they had um, out of, out of you know, the fear of the unknown, basically. Um, beyond that, um, common mistakes, that's what we were asking, right? Yeah, that you had observed in your actual practice. Well, I mean... I didn't really see that many mistakes because that was sort of the reason for us being involved, right? It's like, Hey, here's, here's my client. They don't know what to do. Tell them what to do. And then our job was not to make a mistake. <laughs> so, uh, you know, frankly, I can't say that I really saw many mistakes other than, you know, people coming to me with an emergency, like the, like the, the girl who got pregnant, who didn't have health insurance, um, just not having health insurance in general. Or maybe uh, framed a different way. Were there common things that you saw, clients come to you with where they were ignorant. They just didn't know. And after they had consulted with you, it had actually changed the way they maybe some, even some decisions that they were going to make. Um, and like, especially if that happened over and over again, uh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of curious your thoughts there. Well, like I can think of maybe one example that was fairly common. Um, oftentimes, I saw people using health share health sharing arrangements um, through like a Christian ministry, you know, or, or one of these sort of outfits that um, that was very common where people were doing that as a cost saving measure where, you know, they would, they'd rather spend a hundred or $200 a month and, and be involved in sort of those, um, those sharing arrangements rather than having like a con- contractually based, you know, health insurance, um, benefit. And so I would call, I would generally classify that as a mistake, you know, in terms of just not, it's fine if, if you understand what it is, but once you, once you kind of peel back the layers and realize this is not a contractual obligation, you know, this is 
the kindness of a group of people's hearts and, you know, a lot of administrative uh, bureaucracy sort of dictating when I'm going to pay my providers. Um, In general, I did sway some people away from that um, once they realized some of the the problems with with, uh, the claims processing delays. Um, Just, you know, a lot of providers just don't like it taking a year to get paid for something, (laughs) you know, so uh, that's one big issue with those, those arrangements, but just generally speaking, I think having, having a contract that says this is what services are covered and this is what I'm paying for those services is valuable from a planning standpoint, just to to kind of understand, you know, what your risk exposure is. Um, So that, that'd be probably uh, up there in terms of a common common either misunderstanding misconception or or just maybe um not seeing the full picture um yeah makes sense um and something you said um like earlier uh i hadn't considered before but i was just kind of curious to um follow up on it you mentioned that you know like I i personally i totally get like um in a lot of more maybe conservative leaning states, there's just more inherent, I guess, I don't know, skepticism about the Affordable Care Act plans, like setting politics aside, like it is what it is. Um, but the thing I guess I was, uh, uh, I hadn't considered before was that somebody who is working in a job who might otherwise be f- financially ready to retire and have an, a valid option on the ACA marketplace uh, might still not again, not for political reasons, but might just not just not quite feel confident or not trust um, the idea of jumping off their employer plan, which they know are maybe familiar with, going onto a marketplace plan, and that might be the thing that actually. Um, but but for that thing, they would retire, and that might be the thing that actually b- prevents them from retiring because they feel like they don't have that peace of mind. How uh, I guess is that really common? I. I could see that happening, but I, I was just, I guess I was surprised that that would prevent a lot of people from, uh, um, from retiring because those, those are health insurance plans. They're not health ministries. They're contractual. They're only for a year. You have to renew You know, you have to renew next year. They may not be there next year, but there might be different options next year, but they are like bona fide health insurance plans. And so that, yeah, that's why I was kind of curious to get your thoughts on, you know, how common it was. And also is that more perception or is it born based in re- like born out of reality? Like they, they try to get reimbursed for something and there's, they have troubles with it during the reimbursement process. Uh, and it's a real hassle. So they don't trust it because they have had bad, actual really bad experiences. Um, I think most of it's fear-based and I think it's more common to have that concern when you're already pretty close to calling it quits and you don't have all that time till Medicare or, or another option comes up available um but how legitimate is that fear just broadly speaking um you know depends on what resources you have probably you know um i think i think if you were doing the lean fire thing and really you know really trying to live on a really slim budget um it it might be a little bit harder to pull that trigger just you know the way that um basically it depends on the the market honestly i mean 
but a state like Tennessee, it's interesting. You know, if you had a chronic condition, it would be a little bit scarier here, you know, where you've got Farm Bureau, who's really successful in this market, charges maybe for, you know, high deductible plan with a $3,000. So out of pocket max, you might spend, you know, a 30, 35 year old might spend 120 bucks a month or something, you know, for that plan, just, just a third of the cost of other options that are available on exchange. Um, they're, they're essentially cream skimming, right? All the healthy people out of the pool and leaving less healthy people um, on the exchange. And, and that's going to drive up costs over time, um, depending on how popular you know, <laughs> Farm Bureau becomes over time and uh, versus the ACA plans. And, and, and so, I mean, that, that it, it is somewhat legitimate if you, really are marginally prepared, you know, financially, you can start to kind of see, okay, maybe in a market like that, if I've got a chronic condition, um, that's expensive, you know, maybe, maybe those premiums are going to, you know, and out of pocket maximums, maybe they are going to rise quite a bit faster than, than what it might in another state. Um, but on the flip side, you know, um, if you if you're marginally prepared financially, you probably have a marginal income as well. In which case, you get really generous subsidies, and there's there's definitely a lot of gamesmanship in different markets, you know. And part of part, it's quite interesting. Part of part of what creates a lot of fear in people's minds is there's only one insurance company on my exchange in my state, or there's only two insurance companies on my exchange in my state. Part of that, when it drops down to one, can be quite if you don't have a ton of income. Um, can be actually a great thing as long as you're somewhat flexible on your networks because all of a sudden now that insurer like Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alabama when they were the only insurer in Alabama in past years they could dictate what their benchmark plan price was because they were the only insurer on that exchange and so um, if, if the listeners aren't familiar with what that means it's the second cheapest silver plan in your in your market so that drives the subsidy calculation for all plans on the exchange. And so you could set that artificially high to increase the subsidy for everything else. And they often seem appear to do that. Um, so lots of states, insurers have kind of figured out the math, kind of figure out, okay, well, if I'm the only insurer and it's the second cheapest silver plan in the market that drives the subsidy calculation for everything else and, and drives the net cost of every other plan down, then I'll just make my exchange. I'll offer two silver plans. One will be cheap and one will be really expensive. <laughs> and that expensive plan will drive, drive a, a, a lower net price for every other plan. Um, and so, you know, that, it, you know, that gamesmanship, it, it, it strikes fear in people's you know, mind in terms of, oh gosh, I've only got one option. And what, what happens in the future when, when they drop out or there's some other uh, cataclysmic event in the market? Um, ultimately, some of that is actually quite beneficial for, for the insurer and actually encourages them to continue offering the plan in the market. So that's why you really, even though there's been news articles really since the ACA was passed about, you know, different markets having, losing all insurer options in the market. I don't think that'll ever happen just because of how advantageous it is to be the only insurer in the market. You sort of just can can 
engage in that sort of gamesmanship. Now, I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with how the 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 law is written, but the, they understand the way the law is written, and they they I think will continue offering um, an option uh, for people who are early retirees. And I mean, when it, when it first was passed, I definitely was super excited. I mean, that was a big fear of mine. And, and once the Affordable Care Act became an, an option, I, I sort of felt like, okay, now I can, you know, be an early retiree and not not really have to worry. Um, and I think in general, for anybody in sort of that, you know, average early retiree span of wealth, you know, probably if you're over 10 million in wealth, you, you, then you really have to think about the cost. But then again, you've got more income and wealth. So maybe you don't really care about the cost as much. So I think it's a great, I mean, it's great. It's a great option that didn't exist before that now does. Um, of course, you know, in theory, you could have been responsible, gotten your coverage before becoming ill and and retain your coverage. And, and, but the, the fact that, you know, health insurance is oftentimes tied to the employer, you know, in the U S that not a lot of good, good, good ideas can come about when you've got that main, you know, those main building blocks in place already, those kind of legacy features of our, our system are just going to kind of create a lot of problems. I mean, I think in general, if you just divorced, you know, that relationship of corporate America sort of subsidizing our healthcare system and you just sort of either mandated or encouraged through, subsidies you know people getting coverage early before they get sick and maintaining that coverage through time it'd be a, a whole lot cheaper overall yeah, it would but, yeah and it is it is true i think for especially for the early retirement community the introduction of the ac marketplaces like opened up an entirely new way for would-be early retirees to actually maybe develop a little more, more confidence because uh it is a real option it it, it doesn't mean that the plans are necessarily the best but it does mean that you probably have an option so that you won't go medically bankrupt you won't like lose your shirt because you thought you were going to be okay in retirement but you know uh you know prior to the ACA there were like lifetime caps or it was just you, you maybe whatever couldn't qualify for whatever reason uh and then so you're just kind of walking through the desert hoping that uh you have enough to to make it to the other side but uh the ACA at, at least for all its faults um, does seem to, you know, fill that need. Um, and I'm, I'm also just kind of curious, yeah, have you heard of like Mark Cuban's cost plus, uh, oh, yeah, pharmacy? The, the, yeah. 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 Cause you know, so much of like, so much of insurance costs is driven by, um, it, it, for patients who do not have to go to see a human doctor or a, at, to see a human at a provider center. Like if you're, you need to get dialysis. That's not a drug. That's a service, right? But like, if you have a chronic condition for which you take an expensive drug, like you gave the example of the, I forgot the name of it, the Alzheimer's drug that dipped Medicare prices year over year three percent. Just that one drug. Like drugs can be very expensive. I'm just kind of curious. Like, right now, Cost Plus is is not yet like at scale, but they're growing rapidly. Um, like, how big of a an impact do you think that could have in the broader? way that in i mean if they really are successful nationally like how big of an impact do you foresee that having in the broader insurance uh like health insurance market for retirees for early retirees um uh yeah kind of curious to get your thoughts there 
It unfortunately, I, I like I like the idea of trying to address the problems. Um, so, like the cost plus idea, um, I think I think has gotten a lot of attention because everybody's sort of frustrated with how opaque and frustrating and well non-market driven our healthcare market is right that's non-price driven it's just a opaque um well it's just it it's a market failure essentially um there's no there's no determining price versus value it's just arbitrary right all, all the prices are sort of arbitrary events uh from one one cause or another lots of different causes but um I don't really see it making a meaningful difference simply because there are oftentimes going to be more expensive than other alternatives for a lot of drugs. And for those few drugs that are super expensive, um, patients wouldn't want to pay the cash price. <laughs> you know, they're just, it's sort of, it's not in the insurer's best interest to, um allow that model either uh, unfortunately the, the pharmacy benefit industry is such that they're willing to allow pharmacies to make an exorbitant amount of money on some scripts and then lose a lot of money on other scripts and keeps that keeps the whole machine humming right like it keeps them with the profits they want to achieve and you know on the whole, pharmacies are able to, I mean, when you sort of rank, I guess, 32 major industries in the U.S., pharmacies is really ranked near the bottom, you know, two uh, of 32 major industries for in terms of gross profit margin for quite a while, um, probably since the early 2000s. Um, and I think that that means that they're still making money though. You know, they're still, they're still existing. Um, but you look at, you know, salaries of pharmacists, uh, I don't know your wife's situation, but probably you're more in tune with, with, um, the pharmacy market in general. Um, you know, wage inflation has been, you know, negative for, for about a decade in that industry. Um, there's a lot of, uh, margin pressures in pharmacy. It's it's not what the public thinks in terms of this, you know, hey, I, you know, drugs are expensive. So the pharmacists and the, the pharmacies are making tons of money. Uh, that That's just not the case. Most of the time, they're, they're super, super overly efficient operations that are that are just barely surviving. And so uh, I don't think the cost plus thing, uh, I mean, if that were the alternative, if that were wholesale we scrap everything and just start with that model then yeah it would succeed and be better than what we have now but but unfortunately i don't i don't see a way from them for them to take market share because the consumer who's ultimately deciding on what the best option is price-wise is not going to opt for that you know most most pharmacies uh, for most drugs are there's a lot of drugs that are, are, are losing money when you talk about just the labor cost per prescription and so forth. You know, oftentimes if, if the labor cost is, you know, even at a, an efficient operation, you know, if it's $3 per prescription, 
and you know CVS Caremark is reimbursing 50 cents in total for the supplies, the drug that goes in the bottle and, and everything for a generic drug, the cost plus model is just not going to steer someone, you know, away from, from what ends up being a great deal for the consumer, you know, in that, in that PBM, you know, traditional model that we have now. Um, but, but also, you know, they're going to get a drug that a generic drug where you know, the pharmacy is making two grand, you know, on something that they, there really is no justification for it whatsoever. <laughs> it's just, it's more or less just offsetting losses elsewhere. Um, and that, that's, that's sort of the, the problem is that, you know, again, price is not, not really uh, operating as in the way that it should and driving consumer choices, right? Like, the price is sort of hidden from view and, and sort of, I like the idea of making it more transparent. You know, I like the idea of uh, like the websites, like a uh, healthcare blue book, you know, and, and some of these other, uh, there's several out there where meta bid, where you can go in and sort of, you know, met, bid for procedures. You know, if you want a procedure for X, Y, and Z, you don't want a colonoscopy and you want to pay cash, you know, you want to get it cheaper than insurance rate, you know, and cut out the middleman, all those ideas are good, you know, in terms of uh, trying to restore some price uh, into the system to where people can make value judgments like any other functioning market. But um, you look at, you know, the problem markets in the U.S. education and healthcare, they just that that pricing mechanism is just gone. Right. And, and hidden. Um, Interesting. So that, yeah. So I think I, I don't think it will be successful unfortunately, but um, I'm all for uh, those efforts to try to put the consumer in charge of their healthcare decisions. I mean, um, the high deductible health plans and the HSA movement is a good one, but ultimately so much spending happens after the deductible is met, that out-of-pocket is met with with the fact that, you know, a very small percentage of our, our population is driving the spending predominantly, uh, that really how much you pay for an out-of-pocket service underneath your out-of-pocket max, you know, when you're going to the, you know, doctor for your annual checkup or you're, you're going to a specialist once a year for a minor, minor issue, those, those just, that's not what's driving the cost of our healthcare system, right? It's, it's, um, so it's, we, we just need to do a better job of, of taking care of people who are, who are very sick and, and also giving some, you know, some uh, pricing mechanism in that, in that situation, whether that's, you know, facing some, even if it's not cost, facing some incentive or disincentive to engage in a value-based choice is what we have to do. Yeah, policy-wise, it just that's that's not happening. There's a lot of interest that <laughs> would 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 have anything happen besides that, just because you know it, any profit margin on a. a a big price is better for insurers, you know, than, than having a much lower cost and a higher profit margin. So mm -hmm. that's interesting. Okay. Um, drugs are a good example of that, right. I mean, there's been huge price declines in generic drugs over time, but that's because they have to compete. There's lots of different generic manufacturers out there. You know, the largest one Teva might only have, uh, 10 or 20 mark percent market share, you know, so there it's hugely competitive. And when you have real competition and you have, you know, the, the buyers of pharmaceutical generic pharmaceuticals, your big companies, like your, your wholesalers or your, your CVS your Walgreens, 
um, they 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 decide on the best price, right? They they have a there's a incentive for them to do so, right? They they make more money if they pay less for those things, and so when you have a functioning market, you get a good outcome, you know. Um, so it's really just certain brand drugs, um, certain services, and that where it just shocks you where, you know, one hospital with a great reputation charges half the price of a lesser hospital with a poor reputation, you know, and, or vice versa, you know, it's just, there's really no, there's no price and value are not joined at the hip, like in in most features of life, I guess. Yeah. You know, earlier you were um, talking about, um, I think you were alluding to the idea of medical tourism. Uh, Like that could be one element of strategy for, um, you know, covering your healthcare needs, uh, in retirement. And I was just kind of curious how might, like, how do you view medical tourism for early retirees in terms of how it might play a role in their, um, their healthcare planning? Do you recommend medical tourism for certain types of care in particular, or even certain profiles of customers or patients? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I, I wouldn't make any blanket recommendations for everyone. Um, I would leave it up to the individual and their comfort level with that. But I, I certainly am quite comfortable with it. And my own experience has been positive, you know, with, you know, either anecdotally from people I've talked to or, I mean, I went to El Salvador this year, you know, for my cousin's wedding and uh, had to get a COVID test done and was super impressed with efficiency, you know, and, and what, you know, would typically be considered, you know, a developing country, um, you know, really low cost, really efficient, um, better than, than the, than the, for that particular service was better than my experience in the U S and so, um, better value, better result, better, you know, every, every aspect of it was better. Um, but obviously that's a COVID test. (laughs) It's not open heart surgery. Um, and so, it's difficult to like really assess value, right? So many people do it based on reputation. You know, they talk to colleagues, you know, okay, if I'm having some major medical procedure done, you know, who do I trust to do that? And um, I, I do think it would be nice if there were more readily available um, benchmarks that, you know, sort of indicated quality to the consumer. Um, there are some things out there, you know, I mean, Definitely within that's one benefit to certain insurers is that they do sort of track some metrics like that. You know, um, Blue Cross has been pretty um, in different states has been pretty um, valuable in terms of trying to assess you know providers. Um, in most cases, they're they're measuring things that also impact their bottom line. Like they're they're looking at okay how how well the important things that are okay how well does this person adhere to evidence evidence-based medicine sort of benchmarks? Are they, are they, you know, immunizing their patients at at a a acceptable rate? Are they recommending, you know, colonoscopies at the appropriate age or that, you know, there's various things that, you know, help them control costs and that also indicate quality. Um, But again, that's a very personal decision too, because a lot of people, they're just not, I'm definitely wired as, you know, someone who cares about, evidence-based medicine and cares about um what the science says is good medical care and and i'm not as impressed with uh, you know 
the warm relationship or the uh, how friendly my provider is or, or that sort of thing. But but people, I, I've definitely learned that people do not agree with that. <laughs> There's plenty of people who really only care about bedside manner and they don't care at all whatsoever. They're going to trust that person. They, they, and, 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 and there's, there's maybe some evidence that just having a good trusted relationship and acting on that person's uh, advice, even if it's not absolutely optimal, that that can be valuable too. Right. So um, in terms of improving people's health, so I, different strokes for different folks. I mean, I would say for sure, um, that's a very personal decision. <laughs> so, All right. Well, this has been um, uh, really insightful. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, but where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Well, I'm not, I'm not super active on social media, but, but certainly uh, if, if anybody wanted to message me on LinkedIn or something, my, my handles legal drug dealer and uh, on Facebook, it, you just look up my name and, and send me a message and I'll probably probably see it at some point. <laughs> All right. Well, really appreciate your taking the time to chat with us today. And, um, uh, thanks so much for, for sharing your, you know, insights and experience with us. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Nice meeting you. All right. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.